Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kindness Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, Christmas time is here. It is. Happiness and cheer. Indeed. <laughs> That's a song, right? I feel it like is, I don't yeah. know the rest Christmas of the song. Christmas time! Oh, yes. This is the song that you have been singing for over a week now, and the children laugh every time you sing it. Yep. Yeah. Ever since Thanksgiving, which is gone and over with, I'm no longer thankful for what I have. I'm only looking forward to the gifts that I will soon receive. No, now you're joyful. At Christmas. Because of the gifts. Okay. You sound like our three-year-old son, who is... Every time he sees a Christmas tree, he is wondering where the gifts are. Where the are. presents are. Yeah. Every time, I mean, the one at the mall, he's like, where are the presents, mama? I said, that's not all Christmas trees just come with presents for you, Silas. Like Christmas is not actually about you. Yeah, I suppose. I guess the message of how the Grinch stole Christmas hasn't sunk in yet, even though he's watched it 12 times already. That has become his favorite movie. I think we watched it four times this morning. While I was making breakfast, it was just on repeat. Right. He was sitting on the couch. Yeah. He's still learning. Though he is worried that the Grinch is going to come and take his Christmas tree. Hey. So. If it'll keep him in line. <laughs> we're, we're not above coercion here in the Chamberlain household. Yes, we are. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> so all of our decorations are up at this point. We got the tree. We got the lights. We got the wreaths. We have a bowl with uh, pine needles and cranberries in it. When candles is a centerpiece, all of the decorations are up. But there's one decoration that we actually keep that's a Christmas decoration, technically. But we actually keep it up all year round. And the reason why we keep it up all year round is it's something that I actually got when I was in Israel a couple of uh, years ago. It's more than a couple years ago at this point. It's probably it was like, like five or six years ago. Yeah, probably like seven, but... But that's a couple. I mean, one, two, I mean, skip a one, few. Two, yeah, I mean, couple. two years are basically erased from the time stream because <laughs> yeah, of COVID. Exactly. So if you take those out, it's still just a couple of years. And it was when we went to Bethlehem and got a tour of uh, that city. And I bought this little nativity scene that was carved out of little pieces of wood. And it actually stays on our bookshelf all year round. And it's one of my favorite little trinkets that I have. Well, I guess we don't have a lot of trinkets, but of the the few trinkets we have that aren't from Target, that's probably the number one that yes. that I like. And I remember being very jealous that I was not able to go on that trip, but it's okay. We won't bring that back up. I brought you home a suey. Did you? Yeah. That? Yes. That's yours. It's ours. Oh, it's ours. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> thinking of me while you were in the Holy Land. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> But there's something about that nativity scene that I have learned to take with a grain of salt because uh, it is not accurate. And actually, I don't think that I've ever seen a nativity scene or a Christmas nativity play or a living nativity that was actually even close to historically accurate to the nativity account in Scripture. Are yeah, you intrigued? Absolutely. I think I know where you're going, but... But it's not for the reasons right. that most people might think. So that's what we want to talk about today, and we'll dive into that in just a moment. So, the nativity scenes in all y'all's houses and churches 
are not accurate to the history of the biblical account. I am throwing the gauntlet down. This is where everyone gets mad. Right. But it might not be for what you're thinking because there are a couple of things that people will throw out there like, oh, technically the nativity scene is not accurate and here's the reason why. But I'm not talking about the wise men because that's the big bugaboo for most people, right? Right. Where the, the, the magi, the wise men were not at the birth of Jesus in the stable by the manger. They didn't get there until a year, maybe up until about two years after Jesus was born. Because they were traveling the whole time. Like they were coming from a really far place. And so it just doesn't make sense within the timeline. But the time they saw the star on the day of Jesus's birth to traveling, like they didn't get there in one day, it would have taken them years, honestly, to get there, which is, I think that's hard to wrap our minds around considering modern transportation. Like it wouldn't take us years to get anywhere on the, around the world, like on the globe. But uh, in this time, it is true that they wouldn't have arrived in that moment, which is why some people want to correct their nativity scenes. If they can move the pieces, they'll have the wise men like further behind. Just further or, down the mantle. Yeah, they're, they're journeying to Jesus still. And it's usually like right below a poster that says, wise men still seek him. I don't think I've seen it that way, but I have seen people who just are moving the wise men. So oh, you've if, never seen a wise men still seek him? No. Imagery? No. Um, but I don't I don't know what kind of houses you're walking into, but the, I'm not walking I into mean, the white same people, homes. I mean, white people usually. Okay. Yeah. No, but I mean it makes sense, you know, people want to reflect the accurate portrayal of what the day Jesus was born looked like and the wise men were not there. So I understand people trying to like just correct it in whatever way they possibly can, but still hold on to um, the beauty of their Christmas nativity scene. And the cool hats that those little wise men wear and stuff. Right. But as that might be an inaccuracy in the nativity scenes that sit on your mantelpiece. That's not what we're talking about. That's actually not that consequential. Uh, relative to the inaccuracy that I want to talk about today. I don't want to talk about the the fact that the wise men weren't at the stable when Jesus was born. I want to talk about the fact that Jesus wasn't even born in a stable. He was not born in a stable. He was not born in a cave, as others have posited. There was no hotel that Jesus and Mary went to that they were turned away from. There was no innkeeper who has become an entire sermon point for most Christmas sermons uh, or an entire character in the living nativity who says there is no room in this inn, not in the Bible it is not there. Right. And I know what you're thinking. What are you smoking? It's I in there. It's I in the Bible. No, There's the inn. There's the innkeeper. There's the stable. It's all there. How can you just be ripping out of the Bible? Our firmly held beliefs and traditions about Jesus being born in a stable. Yeah, I'm sure people are are either have just completely turned off this podcast now because they're already upset at us, or maybe they've... See, are, they wouldn't do that to us. They know that we're going to bring them back around. Well, hopefully. We'll see what you can come up with. But I think a good place to start is actually reading the account of where a lot of these um, long-held traditions of the day Jesus was born came from. So... I'm going to read Luke 2, 1 through 7, and then you can 
you can explain further because you're definitely really passionate about this. So Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration with, how do you say his name? Quinerius. Quinerius, <laughs> governor of Syria. We should name our kid that. Hey, yo, Quinerius, okay, get over here. You didn't, you didn't pronounce it any better than I was going to. So this was the first registration when Quinerius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So you might notice what is absent from that narrative. There's no mention of a stable. No, but there's a manger. There's no mention of an innkeeper. But there was no room at the inn. Yeah, and so people might be thinking, well, what are you doing here? Because those are clearly implied, right? Because if there is an inn, that's an innkeeper. If there is a manger where you feed the animals, then that must be in a stable. But we actually tend to fill in the story based on the details that we've been given, uh, like we create this elaborate account based on information of like one or two words. Like the two words are manger and in. And then we concoct this whole like crazy narrative and have Christmas plays and living nativities based on what happens in the white spaces that isn't actually talked about. So like the image is always like Mary and Joseph are riding into town just as Mary's water is breaking. And so Joseph, he grabs the go-go bag and they're out in the cold and they're looking for lodging and everyone is in town for the census. So they go from, from one hotel to the other and they're looking for accommodations, but they're all booked. There's like absolutely no vacancy. And so they're, they're out of options and they're looking around and boom, they just see this stable. Mary's about to give birth. Like it's this baby's coming. And so they, they rush into the stable and single-handedly Joseph delivers this baby and and they wrap him up in whatever cloak he had and put him in the, the trough inside the stable. And that's kind of like more or less the drama of the, the Christmas story that we have. It's just that none of those details are given in Scripture. And these recreations that we have and we you know celebrate and all those kinds of things, uh, they actually arise from a misunderstanding of the biblical data. And that, that understanding actually comes from a mistranslation of one key word. The way we translated one word in this passage has become the basis for which we have myriad traditions of how we retell this story and characters that we create for it. And that is the word that is translated as in. There was no room at the inn. Well, and I think uh, it's not only the misunderstanding of this word, which we're going to get into, but I think what we do is we we look at the words and try and place our own modern day understanding um, of what is an inn and what is, uh, where would you see a manger? You're only going to see a manger in a stable. And so within our own minds of understanding the world and the way that things are, we try and fill in the blank pieces of this story and create it in a way that is familiar to us. But not only did we misunderstand the word in, but 
uh, there are different cultural differences of the way the world operated then. And uh, we'll get into that too. But it is interesting how the misunderstanding of one word and the bringing in of our own cultural references really shaped a story and, and created tradition that isn't as accurate as we would hope it to be. Yeah, so let's take a closer look at that word in, how it can be translated, how it was translated, how it should be translated, and then that'll help us to retell the story in the way that I believe it actually happened. So when it says there was no room at the in, that word that translators have rendered as in is the Greek word kataluma. And if you look at the New Testament, there's actually a couple of different ways that you could render that word. And the first way is how it's rendered here uh, as like the first century equivalent of like a Motel 6 or a Hilton or Marriott if you if you got fat stacks. <laughs> um, but the other way to render it is as an upper room of a house. So the way that first century homes uh, in what is now modern day Israel were the way that they were constructed is that they were these rectangular buildings with flat rooftops, uh, and they were kind of like multi-tiered. And we're kind of talking about just sort of the standard working-class single-family residence dwellings. Um, and so as you entered the house, on that first uh, main level, it was kind of like there was two tiers on it. So there would be like the main living area, which would be like the main tier of the first floor but then there would be this sunken section typically of that first level and that's where the livestock would come in for the night and it's typically actually where you would sleep with your family uh you your wife all your kids your goats like the whole like the whole kit and caboodle like everybody was together um, so they had no compunction about co-sleeping back in those days and so like that the mangers would be there uh, in that sunken area there. Then you kind of have the main living space where people hang out. Uh, and then there would be kind of a ladder of sorts up to this second floor. Um, and this is where you would have the Cataluma, which was the upper room. And that was just another space. And often it was like your guest room. Like when you have guests over, um, that's where they would stay. So there's these two different renderings for this word Cataluma, in as in like the, the Hilton, or the spare bedroom that happens to be on the second floor of most of those homes. And that's often like your nicer space. Like you said, that's your guest space. Um, so naturally, like when family's over, this is where you put them. You're not putting them on that sunken in space where you and the six kids and the cows and the goats and the chickens are sleeping. So that upper room, the Cataluma, is is your guest space, like your nicest space within the home. Yeah. And so since there's these two different ways, why is it that I'm so confident that I... I'm going against most modern English translations. Because you're Dale Chamberlain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I'm gonna, I have a good reason, and I'll tell you about it in just a moment. So why do I think all the modern Bible translators are wrong? One, I think it's because this word was mistranslated like many, many, many years ago, and then it became the standard uh, translation because of the traditions that kind of sprung up around it. And so it became kind of unquestionable. But this word kataluma can be translated in those two ways. Uh, and this is a good exercise in like biblical exegesis and hermeneutics is the way that we figure out what words mean, the way we translate them into English and interpret them in the Bible is um, we look at where that word uh, 
appears in other places in the New Testament, hopefully within the new book, the same book, uh, but uh, within the same uh, author's corpus within the New Testament, and then within with you know throughout the entire Bible is kind of the range of things. And then when you want to look at contemporary um, sources as well and how they were using that word to help you get a handle on what that word means. And so we want to look in Luke um, where else he's used this word kataluma and lucky for us he actually uses it the same word later on in the narrative which is helpful sometimes you discover this is the only place a word is used and this author actually never uses it again so it's a little bit more difficult to or actually, it's like that's the only place in the yeah. new testament that and word is so used. Yeah. it's really just at that point in, in many ways like an educated guess but thankfully kataluma is used several times by luke um, and so we can see based on him being the author, how is it that he's probably, you know, explaining this word or understanding this word to be in his writings. And so when it comes to Cataluma, Luke uses this word uh, later in the narrative to describe the upper room that the disciples actually rented, rented out for the, the Last Supper. So this is that exact same word. Um, and it's very clear in that instance that Luke is not talking about an inn. He's not talking about Motel 6 or Hilton um, with an innkeeper, but he's actually talking about the upper room in the way that uh, you had described it earlier. But it's also helpful to see when does he render Cataluma in reference to an inn. And we see that as well when he actually talks about an inn and an innkeeper, but it's not, he's not using the word Cataluma. He's using a different word. And this can be found in the parable of the good Samaritan, where the Samaritan takes the robbed beaten up man and he puts him in an inn and he pays an innkeeper to take care of him. But again, he's not using Cataluma. He's using Pandochion. Is that how you'd probably pronounce it? Uh, Pandokion. That's probably more Latin, huh? Pando. Pandokion. Pandokion. Like what happened was <laughs> he went to Pandokion. I had to like really pull back into my like Greek courses. Like, wait, no, the CH is a K. So anyways, he's not using Cataluma in this reference with the inn and the innkeeper. He's using Pandokion. So we have a clear instance where you, Luke uses Cataluma mm-hmm. to refer to an upper room of a single family residence. And we have another clear instance where he doesn't use that word and he's referring to kind of a commercial lodging kind of situation. Well, probably more like a hostel. Is, yeah. Would be. I don't imagine they had hotels and lodging accommodations in the way that we're thinking of in modern culture, but it's, it's similar enough to understand the word and it's they're just two different things at this point right so to circle back there was no room in the cataluma is that the inn or is that the upper room we have another instance where that same word is used to refer to an upper room and there's a different word that luke opts to use when he's referring to more of a an inn with an innkeeper so if you look at that, then purely from a linguistics perspective, it makes a, it's kind of a slam dunk to render in the nativity story. There was no room in the upper room. It's just that's a kind of a clear slam dunk, just looking at the words. Uh, but then when you look at the historical cultural elements of it involved, uh, involved in it, 
it becomes that much stronger of a case. Because for one thing, everybody's returning to the town of their family's origin for the census. And so that means that Mary and Joseph, they had a ton of family staying in Bethlehem. And family's important in every culture, but in like an honor, shame, collectivistic culture uh, that was there in the first century Mediterranean, Mediterranean region, it would have been like deeply shameful to leave a family member out in the cold. And that's true. Like you, you didn't even have to know them. Like it could be like a distant relative. Like it was like the child of your second cousin and you only met that second cousin once, like 30 years ago. Doesn't matter. It's family. It would be to your shame if you left them out in the cold. And since everybody and literally their mother is in town, uh, they were related to somebody who would have taken them in. Right, and it didn't matter how many people were already in that home. Like, they were going to pack them in. If you were family in any way, shape, or form, like, you were going to be staying in a family member's home. That's just the way it was. Yeah, so the more likely scenario is that since everybody's coming to Bethlehem, they're all staying with family. Uh, There may have been, like, one family or multiple families that had homes there still in Bethlehem. And so whichever family member that was, I mean, their, their house was, was packed like a, like a bottle of olives and <laughs> they of olives. they are just like cr- people coming out of windows and people are up in the upper room, probably laying down like Tetris style because they're just like, they're just bodies. There's bodies everywhere. And so even still, uh, Mary and Joseph would have brought been, you know, brought into that. Um, but since there was no room in the upper room where they would have had the privacy to, you know, have a baby, have a baby <laughs> in, the, probably, in the finest accommodations within that home, which would have been the guest room, the guest space, uh, there was no room for them in the normal space that they should have occupied. Right. So that happened probably on the, the main level of that, the, the ground level of that uh dwelling place and joseph probably wasn't even in the room for it that was kind of the culture of the time like the men weren't there and so the men probably went were all out you know all 27 of them are probably all out in the backyard hanging out or maybe they're hanging out on the roof smoking cigars and waiting for this baby to come meanwhile all the 27 women are inside uh in the main dwelling area and they're coaching Mary through this baby. Then the baby comes, and just like any other working class family, they don't. There were no Velcro swaddlers. There were no, you know, you know when when you have a baby, like they all get that same blanket and beanie. Yes. Like since like the 1950s. I know. Like, but they they didn't even have those. It was just kind of like whatever piece of cloth was available to you that you could cut to size. Mm-hmm. That's what you wrap your baby up in. And then again, the baby was put in the manger because again in a working class family that's a nice little trough that it's got some hay in it the baby's not going to roll away it's safe and so you put the baby there and so really that's a different picture than what we get from most uh nativity uh church programs yeah because it's really not depicting that they were turned away and they're just left in the cold on their own it's really depicting that Jesus was born in the most ordinary way you could imagine. He was with family. They were there with Mary. Like it wasn't just Mary and Joseph alone. And 
they had no other choice but to like lay him next to the goats. When we really understand, <laughs> they were gonna lay him next to the goats anyway, <laughs> right? Like when just we, like every other baby, right? When we we truly understand the historical and cultural aspect of of the way life was just lived during this time, you actually see what Luke is trying to tell us is not how unordinary the birth was and how Jesus was birthed against all odds, against every negative thing you can imagine for poor Mary. Right. And that's the way we we like to, we love to sensationalize it. Like, like we just like the drama of Mary and Joseph being on their own. Like it was probably raining too. Right. And like, nobody wants to take them in. And this is the savior of the world being born in the most adverse situation that could be conceived in his day and age. What a indignity to the savior of the world that like he's born worse than most babies. Right, which really what we see is Luke is saying Jesus was he Jesus was born in a way that was incredibly ordinary. Right. And and that was really the point. In giving us all these details, Luke isn't trying to point out that Jesus was born under more adverse conditions than the rest of us. Um, He was pointing out those details because those were all kind of markers of the fact that, you know, this is what everybody did or how it was for everybody similar to everybody in a working class family. And he, he does that later in the narrative, too, like when Mary goes to give a sacrifice at the temple, she gives uh, turtle doves, which was like the lowest in the law that you could give, um, which was an indication that they, they did not have money. They were like a working class, ordinary family. And so. Um, that's kind of the point that it would be kind of like if I told you that today at Kaiser Hospital in Riverside, California, there was a baby boy who was born to an unmarried working class couple. Unless you were related to that couple or you were friends with them or you were friends with somebody who was related to them, like you, like you don't care. You literally don't care. I mean, sure, like you're happy. Anytime a baby comes into the world, you're like, oh, nice, a baby. That's good news. That's, you know. That's something to celebrate. But like, unless you know the baby, like, that's not news. It's not. The, what is news is if the baby was born in the car on the way to the hospital. Like, those are the kind of news stories that are like, wow, that like you hear about that happening, but that's kind of rare. Like, you definitely want the baby to be born in the hospital. And I think oftentimes we look at the birth of Christ and we kind of parallel it to one of those types of situations is... Mary's water broke and there was no, they didn't get there in time and there was no space in the inn. And so she had no other choice than to, again, birth him next to the chickens and the goats. Right. And like that this is, crazy story. Like this woman gives birth in the middle of a tornado. Like right. that kind of a story. Yeah. And it's not. It's just, it's, it's like more like said. there was a baby born at the Kaiser down the road to a working class family. Right. And you're like, okay, so what? Like the only, the only reason it's significant is because of who it is. Yes. And that's much like, all of the details that we really read about Jesus in in all of the gospel accounts is what the authors are trying to show us is that Jesus came to the earth, was born, even though he was the savior of the world in the most ordinary and mundane way you can think of. And even then the description of Jesus when we like there's can't remember where it is, but we get one like glimpse of what he looked like and he was ordinary. He wasn't the, you know, most <laughs> muscular, handsome looking man, which we actually see the Bible describe 
many men as good looking men. I think David was one of them. And so was Solomon. And uh, like to the point of this is why they were leaders because they had this they like had a strong jaw. Yeah. Right. Like they were tall, dark and handsome. But Jesus, when we see any kind of description of his birth into the world or even his physical appearance, he is very ordinary. And that's part of the beauty of Jesus. Like God in the flesh came to this earth as the servant man. Right. In all of the most ordinary ways you could think of, even though he was the savior of the world, which is obviously not ordinary. Yeah, and this is a major theme uh, in the Gospel of Luke. This is why I kind of like looking at um, stories within the Gospels, not as because there's a lot of stories in the Gospels that are repeated. This one isn't necessarily one of them. Uh, we get a, a little bit different side of the story from Matthew, and then Mark and John don't even mention Jesus' birth. Um, but even which is the really story, interesting yeah, in and of like itself. Just, there's right on just, to the, right on to his ministry. You don't even get to see how he came into the world. Yeah. I mean, guess, I guess Mark was trying to spill as little ink as possible. And by the time (laughs) John was writing, like people, people know that story. I'm telling a different story, you know, from a different perspective. Um, but each of the four gospel accounts was written for a specific purpose and was written with a specific message in the way that each story is told is crafted into that, that larger narrative. And one of the major themes of Luke is that um, Jesus really came for the people who were most ordinary. He came for the outcasts. He came for the people who were looked down on, the people who were mentally ill and physically disabled, the people who were marginalized, people who were forgotten. And a lot of times the, the medium is the message. And the medium that Jesus chose to use in presenting himself to the world, uh, even through his birth, was this ordinary working class family and all throughout Luke there from the first page all the way to the last it is um, Luke is conveying all the ways in which Jesus's life death resurrection point to the fact that he is seeking to include the least among us and to elevate them to a place of prominence in the kingdom of God even the one chapter previous in Luke chapter 1 we get this kind of side-by-side story um, where the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. And so you have Zechariah who's in the temple. And this is a crazy story too because that was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest because he was he was a priest. And um, so you would go to the temple and like they would cast lots on who would actually get to go in and burn the incense. And Zechariah was an older man, and he's this man of God, just this pillar of the faith. And he and his wife had been praying for a child. They hadn't been unable to have a, a child their entire life. And while he's there, this man of God in the most holy place, spiritually mature, doing a spiritual thing. At the highlight and, of his career. At the like, highlight, that's the of, highlight his life, of his moment, right. An angel comes to him and says, you're going to have a baby. His name's going to be John. And he's going to prepare the way for the Savior. Zechariah doesn't believe it. Right. This man of prominence. And because of that, Gabriel uh, strikes him mute. Then you you fast forward and then you're you're looking at this 14, 15-year-old girl who is engaged but is not yet married. Just kind of like in, in all the ways of like that culture is like bottom of the rung in terms of influence and significance and even and, credibility. 
right from a lot of perspectives like who's gonna take the word of this 14 15 year old girl who's not married Right, like her yeah. voice has it. She e- has no voice. At I mean, that point. even in a progressive society, we still, like still yeah, a fourteen, fifteen-year-old girl. Like compared to like a a forty-year like spiritual authority, there's there's a there's a difference there. And Gabriel comes to her and says, "You're going to be with child, even though you're a virgin," which is a bigger miracle than was told to Zechariah. Like, you know, your junk didn't work for forty years, but you're going to get pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the way you phrase that, yeah, oh, goodness, and. But with Mary's like, you're not even going to have sex and you're going to be pregnant. Like that's, that doesn't happen. And, um, this was going to be an adverse situation for her because she's going to have to explain this to Joseph and this can be a whole ordeal and it's super scary, but she accepts it in faith. And so it's showing that the, the, those who are least among us who have faith become the most prominent are the most celebrated uh, are the people that Jesus came to really use. So we see that in chapter one. Then we see in chapter two that his his birth was ordinary. No one would care unless you knew about it. And so from the very beginning stages of this account, then we see that uh, the story goes on, the, the kinds of people that Jesus interacts with and hangs out with and the way that he treats them. Um, it It builds out this theme that Jesus came for those that everybody else has forgotten about. He came to be the voice for the voiceless. Not not just in some kind of social justice way. Mm, yeah. But in an eternal way um, to, to bring those voices to a spiritual prominence that they had not previously had because they were, they were the forgotten among us. And that really is the purpose of the Christmas story, right? That's really the purpose of even getting any kind of details about Jesus's birth because like we said earlier, not all of the gospel accounts even reference Jesus's birth. So the two we get, like that's the purpose of sharing that with us. And that's really what the hope of Christmas is. It's not so much um, the traditions and all of the other things that we've built into Christmas, but it's this idea that the savior of the world came in the flesh for the most ordinary people. And he even stepped into the most ordinary life to be there for those that are marginalized and outcasted and welcoming welcoming them into his kingdom. Of course, the elite and the well-off are also welcome into the kingdom, but he set himself in a way that was most relatable um, and just this very common everyday person experience right he he privileged the disadvantaged rather than privileging the privileged yeah and i think we just even even in our attempts to remember christmas and celebrate christmas we forget that aspect of hope because that's where a lot of us are right that's where i mean that's where we are is it wouldn't say we're any kind of elite or any kind of a major influential people that um it only makes sense Uh, for Jesus to come for us, right? But we are those regular, ordinary people that the Savior of the world came for. Right. So, I mean, if you're the person who's like looking at your budget right now thinking like, oh my gosh, how how am I going to afford the gift I want to get for my kid and to fill up my gas tank and buy Mm -hmm. groceries and um, have a conflict with my family and this is Christmas and we're supposed to be joyful, but like I'm dealing with all the banalities that come along with the other 11 months of the year. 
Christmas is for you. Like this is the like that's that's who the story is for. And so if that uh brings a measure of comfort and hope to you, then hey, that's Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Kynos Project Podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kynosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.